when you were in school, did your science teacher ever make you write a hypothesis? Or more than one hypothesis? I think the plural is hypotheses. That's how you say that. It's the official way. Um, I don't know why I remember this. Like, I can't remember important things I need to remember. But I remember when I was in school, we had to write hypotheses in this format. If this, then that, because of this reason. So the way that would work is we would set up some sort of experiment and we would have a hypothesis first. Like if we plant identical bean seeds in these little identical styrofoam cups, only half of the bean seeds get fertilizer and the other half don't, then the ones who get the fertilizer will grow bigger and faster because of the extra nutrients in the soil or whatever, right? I remember this one. If I place a slice of white bread and a Twinkie in identical plastic baggies for a period of time, then the white bread will mold and the Twinkie will not because all the sugar in the Twinkie will dehydrate mold spores or something like that. The reason I remember that, I know a science teacher who had a Twinkie hanging from the ceiling of her classroom for 20 years. And that thing looked just as pristine as the day she put it in there. I don't know if you know this, but they're not good for you. Um, but it's memorable. I remember it. I can't remember when I'm supposed to get Rachel at the store when I go, but I remember that a Twinkie won't mold. As those are hypotheses. After we did the experiment, we would we judge our hypothesis to see if it was right or wrong. And then we would, we would present our findings that would start on our reasons. We're going to end the book of Matthew today. We're going to close the cover on Matthew. And in a way, Matthew's presenting his findings and then giving us the results of the experiment. Throughout the book of Matthew, people have had, throughout Jesus' ministry, people have presented hypotheses about Jesus. Some of them, if you read back through the book, are even worded surprisingly like this, only the because part is sort of understood and not mentioned specifically. If you go back into Matthew 4 and read The Temptation, when Satan tempts Jesus, doesn't he say it like this? He says, if you are the Son of Man, then turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of Man, then throw yourself off of this high point of the temple. If you are the Son of Man, or Son of God, excuse me. If you are the Son of God, then bow down to me. The disciples even did it. When Jesus mentioned um, the cross for the first time, Peter said, that should never happen to you. If you're the son of God, you should never suffer. When Jesus was crucified, there were hypotheses at the foot of the cross. 
if you are God's son, then come down from there. And all of those have the same understood because of this reason. You know why people missed who Jesus really was? They had the wrong hypothesis. They all said the same thing. Satan, the disciples, the people at the foot of the cross, they all said this. If you really are God's special son, then you will never suffer. God would never let the son in whom he is well pleased run around all hungry, rejected, despised, and executed. That was their hypothesis. Where we open the book of Matthew today, though, the experiment has been conducted, and we have the results. What were the results of the Jesus experiment that let people know they had the wrong hypothesis? Somebody say it. The resurrection. See, they said, if you're the son of God, you would never suffer because God would never let his special son be executed and killed. But when Jesus comes back to life, guess what he says? You were wrong about that one. Because here I am. The resurrection that we've been talking about for the last two weeks is what let people know they were wrong in their hypotheses about Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the Christ. The cross was God's purpose and God's best for him. And now today we come to the final paragraph of the book. And basically, it's, we call it the Great Commission. And basically, here's what it is. Jesus is going to be presenting the results of the experiment. Given that I am the Christ and the Son of God, here's the result of the experiment that should, that should happen in all of you, in all of us. That's the Great Commission. Let's Let's read it together first, and then we'll study our way through it. This is from the New American Standard, Matthew chapter 28, the last verses of, of the book, verses 16 through 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The first, the first verse or two of that uh, first verse, really, of this passage lets us know that this is, the, this is a special resurrection appearance of Jesus because it's the only, of Jesus, only one of Jesus' resurrection appearances that was by appointment. What we're going to read today is not the first appearance of the resurrected Jesus. It's not the last appearance of the resurrected Jesus. What makes it special is it's the only one that was, that was an appointment that he kept. Jesus has been talking about this resurrection appearance since the upper room around the Last Supper, the, the Lord's Supper. 
Back in chapter 26, it's Thursday night. The, the night of the Passover supper, the last supper where we get communion from. And Jesus has told the disciples, things are going to get real scary real fast, boys. So scary, you're all going to run out on me. He'll tell Peter later, you're going to deny you've ever even known me. And during that conversation, Jesus drops this one in there, though. He says, but when the smoke clears and the dust settles, after I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. That's the first invitation, the first appointment of today's resurrection appearance. If we go later into chapter 28, this is, at, this is Sunday morning, Easter Sunday. Jesus has been crucified, buried. The women go to the tomb. They find the tomb empty. What does the angel tell the ladies at the tomb? Do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's been raised, just as he said. Come and check it out. He ain't here. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's been raised from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. This one didn't make the screen, but a few verses later, they're running back to tell the disciples. Jesus appears to them and he says the same thing. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. So our passage opens today like this. The 11 disciples went into Galilee to the mountain Jesus had designated. We hadn't read the designation of the mountain, so he could have told them even more times. But a minimum of three times, Jesus said, just go to Galilee. Just when the smoke clears and the dust settles, go to Galilee. I want to see you there. Tell my brothers to go see me in Galilee. What do you think we're supposed to learn from all of those appointments? I think we're supposed to learn that this is important. Make sure you are there. That's why some biblical scholars, and I tend to agree with them, some believe that this is the resurrection appearance Paul talked about in, res, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. We've talked about the last couple of weeks. Remember, there's that one place where Paul said Jesus, he gives a big list of everybody that Jesus appeared to. And in there he says, one time Jesus appeared to over 500 believers at the same time. Do you remember that? Some Bible scholars believe that the, the Great Commission was the time that there were more than 500 people, people there. Now, Matthew doesn't mention that, which seems like a big detail to leave out, honestly. But it would make sense. It makes sense. Because if, if they know this is the only one that's by appointment, the rest of the times Jesus appeared, he just appeared. And suddenly he was there and everybody was surprised. But this is the only time where the disciples could say, if you hang out with us long enough on this mountain in Galilee, Jesus said he's going to appear. Would you go? I would have. And it would explain something else that's thrown a lot of people for a long time that we read in this passage. In verse 16, the, the 11 disciples, remember Judas has, is gone. They go to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, the disciples. But then there's these words right here, but some doubted. If there's over 500 people on that mountaintop, maybe it makes those words make a little more sense too, because I don't know why the disciples would have been doubting by this point. They've done the, put your hand in my side and feel my scars, and they've met him and they've ate with him. And by this time, 
But maybe there's other people around who do the doubting. I don't know. I can't tell you for sure. But I think that's where I, where I lean. What's confusing about those words, Matthew doesn't tell us who did the doubting, why they doubted, or even what they were doubting, or what they doubted. Here's my best guess. My best guess is, and maybe in, if it was a big crowd, different people were doubting for different reasons. Maybe some saw the disciples worshiping this being, and some of them, maybe they doubted, should we really be worshiping Jesus? I mean, doesn't, doesn't our scriptures say we're only supposed to worship God? Maybe they doubted they should be worshiping Jesus. The Trinity's a hard concept to wrap your mind around. Maybe some of them doubted this really was Jesus, the same Jesus who had been alive not long before. I can't tell you who doubted for sure. I can't tell you what they doubted or why they doubted, but I can tell you this. I am really, really glad those three words are in the New Testament at this point. Even though it's, they've confused a lot of people and people have misunderstood them and Here's why I'm glad they were there. What Jesus is about to do is give the church, like the universal church around the world and every local church individually, Jesus is going to give us our marching orders. And because those three words are in there, he, give, he knows their hearts. He knows there are people that doubt, that have questions that are not answered. They're not sure about this whole thing. And Jesus gives the great commission to that group anyway. Jesus does not separate the ones off who have everything down and have a seminary degree and have all their questions answered and don't have any doubts and say, now you guys, I've got stuff for you to do. Now these people that don't have all their questions answered, they can't play. It's not the way this worked. You ever felt like, like I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, I love God. But man, there's some things I just, I just don't get, I don't understand. I have some questions. You ever said something like, I have some questions for God when I get there. Listen, you can be a part of this too. You're commanded to be a part of this too. In fact, what I've found is the best way for, for my doubts and questions to be answered and erased is to be a part of this. <laughs> to take God at his word, have the faith which leads to obedience, and watch God work. That strengthens faith better than a whole bunch of information ever could. So that's who Jesus gives the Great Commission to. But knowing their doubts, knowing their questions, Jesus doesn't just dive in and tell them what he wants from them. First, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the answer to another hypothesis that has run through the book of Matthew. Where did Jesus get his authority? People have been asking that throughout the book. How come you teach with such authority? Where do you get that authority? In the last week of his life, they asked Jesus, where does your authority come from? He said, 
you tell me where John the Baptist's authority came from, and I'll tell you where he got mine. Remember that? They asked him this all the time. Jesus' enemies believed they knew where Jesus got his power. Where did they believe Jesus got his power? From the devil. Jesus answers the question right here. All authority. So how much authority does Jesus have? All of it. Where does Jesus have authority over? Everywhere, in heaven and on earth. And he says, it's been given to me. That can only come from one source, right? The devil could not give Jesus authority over heaven. In some sense, Satan does like have authority over the kingdoms of this world, but he can't strike a match in heaven. So Jesus says, all authority everywhere has been given to me by my Father. This is Jesus clearly stating who he is. He couldn't be God and get this job. Nobody but God could do the job. Also in Isaiah, God said, I will, I will not share my glory with another. I will not share my glory with someone else. This right here is God sharing his glory with someone. So in some sense, Jesus isn't someone else. He's God. He'll say that again another way in just a minute. But also... Five, six hundred years before this day, the prophet Daniel was shown a vision of someone getting all authority, uh, and it's the Messiah, it's the Christ, and Jesus is saying here, I am I'm that one. This is from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees a vision from God and says, and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man, so a human, was approaching. And he went up to the God of the universe, the Ancient of Days, and he was escorted before him. And to this son of man was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. All peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal, and it will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Today, Jesus says, that's me. And that has happened. It's not fully fulfilled yet. Here's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. I know you have doubts. I know you have questions that aren't uh, answered yet. So before I say anything else, I want you to know this. I know you saw me become the suffering servant, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. All of your infirmities went on me. By my wounds, you are healed. Like I was suffering servant guy for a time, but that time's over. Now I'm arisen victorious Savior, God. And I'm in control of everything, everywhere, for all time. And then I want to zero in on one word in this passage. There's the passage, and we're going to go right there. And Jesus says the word, therefore. And I don't know if I've... Uh, Ever given a sermon slide to one word in a passage, especially a conjunction? But this is a pretty important therefore. We need to consider what it is. Therefore. Um, the fact that Jesus Christ has already been given all authority and sovereignty over everyone in every place for every time. 
Should that have an effect on you and me as his followers? It should. In fact, his authority is the basis he gives for why we can do what he's going to ask us to do that we haven't even got to yet. He's going to tell us to do the Great Commission. It ain't easy. Why should we be willing to do something that's hard and uncomfortable? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, everywhere, for all times. I'm in control and therefore, that's why you can do what I'm going to ask you to do. And finally, since this is supposed to be a sermon on the Great Commission, maybe we should actually get to the Great Commission. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, Jesus has said, I know you have doubts. I know you have all your questions. That, uh, that are some questions that are not answered. But I am in control of all things, all places, all times. Because of that, here's what I want you to do. And first and foremost, and I mean that literally, first and foremost, here's what Jesus tells us to do. Make disciples. Go and make disciples. Grammatically speaking, in Greek, there's only one main verb in the Great Commission, and that's it. Make disciples. You want to know what you and I and us and the church are supposed to be doing? Make disciples. Everything else has to do with that. It's part of making disciples. That's what we're charged with doing. What we're supposed to be doing is making disciples. What's that mean? What's a disciple? The English word disciple, I always use this definition from a, from a philosophy professor at USC. Um, he said this, a disciple is someone who has decided to be with another person in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. Not in religious speaking, that's not necessarily what a disciple of Jesus is, but that's what the word disciple means. It's like an apprentice. If you know, do you know what an apprenticeship is? If you were apprenticed to a carpenter, you know what you would do? You would go live, be with that carpenter. Why? So you could learn to do what he does and be like he is. That's what discipleship really is with Jesus too. We will never be able to do uh, what G all Jesus can do We'll never be able to be all that Jesus is. But discipleship is doing life with Jesus so I can become more like Jesus. So I can love people the way he loved people. So I can forgive people the way he forgave people. So I can have compassion on people the way he had compassion on people. So, he could, so I can stand up for what is right the way he stood up for what is right. So that's what we're supposed to be doing, making people who are becoming more like Jesus. Now, where is the church supposed to be involved in doing that? Go and make disciples. Here's the where of all nations. 
everywhere. Think about this as the original audience heard this. Jesus is standing before 11 men and however many more people are there, but a relatively small crowd, if you're thinking of the whole world. He says, I got something I want you to do. (laughs) I want you to go make disciples in all nations. If they weren't doubting before, (laughs) they, they had something to doubt about then, right? That's a big job. All, you know, this is why over the last year and a half, heard our church, um, our church, and under the leadership of the elders, we have decided to be more intentional in investing in disciple-creating ministries around the world. That's why we have new um, missionaries so often we're introducing you and they're, they're, they're showing up and they're coming. These are people we're supporting now that we didn't use to. You know why? Because that's our job. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. And listen, we, have, we are blessed in ways some places are not. We have weaknesses in some areas other churches don't too. But it's funny to think about this, but our church is a large church according to the national American average. Isn't that funny? We're a relatively large church, and we have kept a relatively low overhead, and so we have financial abilities to invest in the gospel around the world. And I believe, I believe we will, uh, we'll answer for how we are faithful there. That's why we are investing around, because most churches. In the world, the, the overwhelming majority of churches, even in America, the most Christian nation in the world. Don't believe that when people tell you that. But the most Christian nation in the world, most churches, you know what their main concern is? Be able to pay a pastor and keep the lights on and the heat on. And praise God, that's not our, that's not our struggle. So we have a responsibility to invest in the Great Commission. Now, our main mission field is southwest Nebraska. We can't just give money and pretend we've checked the Great Commission box. Because we haven't. Now, what does it look like to make disciples? How do you do it? There's a million different discipleship programs. Some are formal, some are informal. There are different ways that work well in different cultures all around the world. One reason we are never told exactly what to do is because the scripture, the Bible, the gospel fits in any culture under the sun. But all discipleship efforts should have a few things in common. Two absolute no-brainers Jesus puts in the Great Commission. Here's the first one. You make disciples and you baptize them. Baptism is the, the outward sign Jesus chose and prescribed for disciples. When someone comes to understand what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he did for them, when I understand, when it finally, when it clicks, like, oh, he didn't just like cancel my sin, he absorbed my punishment that I deserve. Like he saved me from that wrath of God should have been pointed at me. He took it so that I don't have, I believe that. 
I'm guaranteed eternal life because of what he did. When someone believes that about Jesus, they will want to be with the one who saved him or her. You ever rescue a dog? Anybody ever rescue a dog? I haven't. And don't plan on it. But I love the videos I see on Twitter of people they'll go and they, this dog has been in this pound or something like on a little doggy death row and somebody, uh, somebody rescues this dog and then this, this dog just like just loves on him the entire way home. Why? Because you saved me and they're loyal and you are my human and I'm never going to leave you. When someone understands what they have been saved from, I should want to be with the one who saved us. That's being a disciple. And the first act of obedience prescribed by Jesus for disciples to be baptized, which is a public proclamation that I have been saved by my master. The word baptizo, the Greek word just means to dunk, to immerse. In the New Testament, the people who are baptized, they've already come to know who Jesus is. That's why we do baptisms the way we, we do it here. Sometimes we do it up here in a, a tank with heated water. Sometimes we go to the lake. We've gone to the pool. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? He died under the punishment your sins deserve. Do you believe that about Jesus? If the answer to those questions was yes, have you been baptized? Because you should be. Because he said so. And because that's the first step that we're supposed to be doing as we make disciples. I want you to notice one other thing Jesus says about baptism. This is where I told you the, the some people say the Trinity's not in the Bible. The word Trinity's not in the Bible. The concept of the triune God is absolutely in the Bible. Here's one. Baptizing them in the name. Is that singular or is that plural? How many names are we talking about here? One name, but there's three individuals listed under that name. That there's the Trinity. We baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All God. All right, so we, 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 we go and we make disciples. We baptize them after we make them. He makes them, but you get the idea. And then, step two of any discipleship program, there's teaching, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to. We spend a lot of time in this building teaching, don't we? I spend a lot of time teaching. It's, it's the biggest part of my job. Um, it's a criticism, quite honestly, of our church. So every time we come here, you, you know, you're always talking. I'm like, yeah, sorry about that. It's not, uh, you know, every time you come, you want to do Bible study. and Yes, you know why? It's not because I like to hear myself talk. I don't have that good of a voice. 
Because the Great Commission says you make disciples and you teach them. If we're going to come to know Jesus, we have to know about Jesus. You can't love somebody you don't know. And this is how we get to know the Lord. But notice what we're teaching. We're not just teaching information. In verse 20, what is it we're supposed to be teaching one another? We're supposed to be teaching people to obey. And that can be uncomfortable. How many of you got uncomfortable a second ago when I ask if you know Jesus, you believe in Jesus, but you haven't been baptized and I told you you should get baptized? Anybody be like, was anybody thinking, oh man, that was a little direct. I wish he hadn't said it quite like that. All right, I invited my brother-in-law today and he's here and I don't know what he's... What does this say my job is? I'm not supposed to just teach you information and then be okay with whatever you do with the information. We're supposed to be teaching one another to obey. And for a believer, saved by Jesus Christ, washed in his blood, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, to have not been baptized, that's disobedient. And anytime there's disobedience and we try to teach obedience, there's going to be discomfort. That's why we spend so much time teaching. And, and honestly, like that's the whole process. <laughs> if you go to our website, there's three words at the top of our website. Reach, teach, repeat. I could add baptize. I could have added baptize in there, but it didn't have quite the same ring to it. So sorry. Reach. When somebody's a disciple, you baptize them. You teach them to obey. Part of teaching obedience is baptism. And then those people reach and invite and make sure people are taught so that those people can reach and see the, pe- and see the people are baptized and taught. And you know, that's how Jesus has been building his church for 2,000 years. He started on a hill in Galilee. He said, I want you guys to start this process, all nations around the whole world. It's been happening for 2,000 years. Now, is that comfortable or uncomfortable? Difficult or easy? Is it hard to tell people about Jesus? Is it hard to invite people to church? Is it hard to get up in front of people and get immersed in a tank of water? Some of you would rather light yourself on fire than, uh, than, than do that. It's going to be hard. That's why Jesus ends the way he began. He makes like a sandwich out of his authority. Guys, everything, everywhere is under my control. I've been given all authority in all places for all time. I've got this. Here's what I want you to do. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. But remember, I am with you, the one with all authority in all places for all times. I will be with you. You Just focus on doing what I ask. I'll take care of the results. It gives us a new hypothesis. If Jesus is who he said he was. 
if Jesus rose from the dead after paying for our sins. And he did. Then, my main focus should be on doing what glorifies him. I should be involved in the Great Commission because that's what my master has asked me to do. And he will win in the end. He's in control of all things for all time and all places. So how are we doing in the Great Commission? Where are you at in the Great Commission? Everyone is somewhere. Everyone in the world is somewhere on the Great Commission. You can find yourself. Maybe you are not yet a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you are one we're still trying to reach. So are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Do you understand why he died? And why that was for you? And how that saves? If you don't, I I would ask you to pray. I'm not going to tell you to pray a sinner's prayer and repeat after me. I would ask you to pray, God, I'm not sure I believe. But I think I need to. If you're real, will you pursue my heart? If that's not you, if you've made it that far, I would ask you again, have you been baptized? Let's schedule it. I would love to do it. I don't have to do it. There's nothing in the Bible that says paid staff at a church have to do the baptizing. If there's someone else who's been important to your discipleship walk, I would love to arrange it where that person could baptize you. My dad has never been a pastor or whatever, but now at 77 years old, he helps with junior high youth group. And uh, one of his one of the youngsters decided he needed to be baptized and their pastor, Pastor Cliff down there in Beloit, Kansas, arranged it and this kid realized Cliff was planning on baptizing him and the kid said, oh, whoa, whoa, I don't want you to baptize me. <laughs> he said, I want Tom to baptize me. That's my dad. So you could do that. Let's get it scheduled. I do know we're gonna have a baptism service. I don't know when, because I do have one person, an older person in our church that has had to be gone um, for some time now, but um, wants to be baptized, so we're going to have one. If, some, if you're thinking today, like, I, I think that's something I should do, best thing you do, text me, email me, and say, I'm in, I need to get baptized, and then I will pursue you to the ends of the earth. If you've made it that far, if you know Jesus, you've been baptized, are you continuing to learn and to allow yourself to be shaped into obedience. How about this? Do you know a lot of information, but it hasn't worked its way out in obedience? And maybe that's where you need to focus on the Great Commission. Do you continually identify your disobedience so you can bring that to the Lord? And then finally, if you're on that path, you don't have to have, you don't, you don't have to be perfect. You're not going to be but are you a part of anyone else's discipleship? You can do D really as you do C. You can be a part of someone else's discipleship while you still don't have all your questions answered. You know what works great? You get two or three people together, you open the Bible and say, we're going to go through this one paragraph at a time and ask God to talk to us out of this thing. He will. When you come to stuff you don't understand, don't have questions, email me. 
I would love to help in that way. Keeps me sharp. I know some of you teach Sunday school. We appreciate that. Help at Awana, serve in youth group. It's great. You're being, that's the Great Commission. Now, does any of that just scare the soup out of you? That's why Jesus ended the Great Commission this way. Just remember, I am with you always. And then he said, to the very end of the age. You know, this age has an end. You know when the end is? Travis mentioned it this morning. When Christ returned, judges the earth, starts his, his kingdom, that's when we can stop doing the Great Commission. We won't have to remember that he's with us. We'll be able to see that he's with us. In the meantime, that's our marching orders. That's his authority that allows us to do it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew, two and a half years we've spent in this great book. Lord, I pray that we know the Lord Jesus better because of it. And God, now that uh, we've closed the book with your great commission, I pray that we would identify where we are at in it and obey you more toward it. Because, God, there are so many in Chase County in southwest Nebraska in, uh, and, and around the world who, as Travis said this morning, their, their fate is terrible as it sits right now. So God, empower us to, with lumps in our throats and sweaty palms, to get on mission with the Great Commission to go into our part of the world, to make disciples, to teach and see that they are taught obedience. And part of that obedience is, is baptism and then repeating the process. God, I pray you would grow our church, but not, not just in numbers, but in people who are obedient and who are reaching out and whose lives have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and want others to know that too so that you would be glorified as you fulfill your promise to build your church and that our light would not be extinguished. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.